from WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're talking about PIOs, Public Information Officers. More broadly, we're talking about all of the public employees who help government agencies communicate with the press and the public. Now, when everything goes well, a good relationship between the press and PIOs means important, timely information is getting to the public. But, as you might imagine, things don't always go well. So, this week, I'm joined by WHQR journalist Rachel Keith to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to public communications. To help unpack it all, we're also joined by three guests who have studied, and in some cases lived, the relationship between journalists and PIOs. Mark Stencil is an adjunct instructor of journalism and public policy at Duke University's DeWitt Wallace Center for Media and Democracy, and he's the co-director of Duke's Reporters Lab. Jennifer Dandron is a former journalist who turned to public communications, serving as the PIO for the Wilmington Police Department and the City of Wilmington. She's now the executive communications manager for Lowe's Companies. And Mike McGill also started off in journalism, working for the National Journal, CNN, and CBS's DC area affiliate. He then went into government communications and became the chief communications officer for CFPUA before founding his own company, Water PIO, which consults utilities on public communications strategy. All right, I'm here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And over the last couple of months, we've been talking about putting this show together to really go in depth and behind the scenes and talk about how it works between us as journalists and reporters and communication officers and PIOs on the government side. And it sounds on the surface like a little bit of inside baseball, but this is where so much of this story actually happens. So we thought it was worth a whole show. And later on, we're going to hear from Jen Dandron about the experiences and what she took away from working as a PIO at the Wilmington Police Department and the city of Wilmington. And from Mike McGill, who was at the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority as their chief communications officer, leading into probably the most intense communications crisis they ever experienced, which was the revelations about Gen X in the Cape Fear River. But first, to start, you spoke with Mark Stencil, and we gave his bona fides at the top of the show, but you had a long conversation with him about all of these interlocking pieces, our jobs as reporters, the opposing number for governments, you know, how PIOs work. And one of the things that came out of this conversation was Mark talking about how at the same time that local newsrooms are facing cuts and layoffs and decreased resources, communications departments for government agencies are staffing up and exploring all these new ways to reach the public, sometimes going around the press, whether that's social media or YouTube channels or podcasts. Yes, and I put that to him, and this is what he had to say. There are large segments of the news media, like particularly local news organizations, that have shrinking staffs and limited resources and vast areas of their region to cover that make it hard for them to keep up with everything. And as reporters, we were always dependent on the kindness of media relations and public information officers to get a lot of information, whether you were getting information from the local police or city county governments. And it, it's just become a, a lot harder to reach those people. At the same time, people in local government, local organizations have all these new ways of communicating directly with the public and have both a little less need 
for the press to get their message out to the people they want it to get to. And it gives them a way to avoid having to deal with the inconvenience of the press when they want to talk to their constituents or followers directly. And that's definitely something we've seen here in New Hanover County. We've seen cuts at local media organizations. And at the same time, the sort of media and communication departments of the school district, the county, the Wilmington Police Department have grown. The number of channels that they can communicate to the public through have grown. And, you know, one of the things that Mark Stencil News spoke about was in spite of this increased capacity on the government side in terms of having larger, more robustly funded communications programs, it doesn't necessarily always translate into more openness and more information coming from government to the press and the public. My students have a lot of trouble getting through to certain kinds of government agencies, particularly police. Our state makes it a little difficult to get information from the police and law enforcement compared to some other states that uh, require a lot more openness. And it's probably a little better at the at the county and city level. And the business community, it, it depends. There's plenty of things they, they would love to convey to the public, and there's plenty of things they would just assume the public not know all that much about. And so it's a, it's a tricky landscape for student journalists, much like professional journalists. There is more to be uncovered, but not enough shovels. And so Mark is currently teaching, and so he talks to his students about this issue that there are so many different organizations. Are there enough in the media to accurately tell the public what's happening? And Mark talks about, I love this metaphor, about so much to be uncovered but not enough shovels. And one of the shovels we use is the public records request, which we've talked about before, and we'll have links on the page to that stuff. But what did Mark tell you about how he sees the PRR process? Communication professionals, a lot of them do know the law, but then sometimes if it's a difficult issue, then things might get slowed down or it won't be a straightforward answer or a timely record request. There's not a lot of incentive for the leaders of government to put large amounts of resources into transparency and public disclosure because that could also just mean more headaches for them. But There are real structural deficiencies in this. So the practice is often slow and methodical. And sometimes that's going slow by public agencies and public officials who owe us that information. But sometimes it really is a legitimate difficulty for them to get the information. But, you know, that can also be abused because we often see public institutions that try to move slowly and make it hard to get information that we are entitled to. And this is something we've heard off the record and on background from usually from former PIOs or people who have left a particular position that, yes, sometimes they get a PRR, they go to the legal department and the legal department tells them, you know what, we could wait 30 days on this. We'd still be in compliance with state law because the letter of the law is, you know, a reasonable response time, which is a very fuzzy, muddy, gray in nonspecific time period. And so, and, and a media outlet's only recourse would be to file a lawsuit and take legal action. And so sometimes we have heard through back channels that government agencies have slow walked the delivery of a public record to the press. 
in the hopes that maybe the story won't be as interesting in a month. I would say, too, in the law, it does say once they have that document, they can't decide when to release it. So if we have knowledge that they have it and we can kind of put pressure, we know you have it, so you need to go ahead and release it. Maybe there's some time for redaction, but once you have it, it means that it goes to us. You don't get to decide when it's appropriate to release it. Exactly. Um, I do want to say, though, while we're talking about this, a real quick shout out to New Hanover County. I think one of the largest public record requests I ever filed was in the summer of 2019 when the county had announced it was going to explore the sale of New Hanover Regional Medical Center. We filed a request for emails and documents and contracts. It was very, very large PRR that required some redaction. And the county got it to me, I believe, inside a week, which is very, very fast for a large uh, request that required some legal overview. So we know that government officials can do it when they want to, which leads us to the question of, are these folks doing their best or are they hiding? And here's what Mark had to say about that. Government employees, career employees that at every level that do know about these laws and these rules and do follow them and do make it possible for us to do our work in journalism. And so it's not a total shutdown, but I think there's a lot of pressure on them to go slow or hide things a bit in a legal-ish way. Higher up sometimes have different opinions about how to interpret the laws and the requirements they have. Yeah, and I will say briefly, going back on your example, Ben, that the county, sometimes when I'm saying, hey, I know that there's this email, can I get it? I mean, it will turn around in a day. And that's what I'm expecting, because I'm only asking about one or two. And if I'm asking about a big batch from a couple months, that's reasonable that that would take a little longer. Sure. And I want to be clear here that we're talking about public documents. Now, when it comes to getting an on-the-record interview or maybe more of a nuanced qualitative answer to a question that isn't just that, hey, we want to see this email or this receipt, that's a whole other issue. And we'll get into that when we talk to Jen Dandron and Mike McGill. So here we're just talking about PRRs. And one of the things we run up against, it isn't just the state's law. It's also federal law. So usually this is HIPAA, which is medical privacy, and FERPA, which is student privacy. And you've got quite a bit of experience with the latter. Yes. Recently, uh, Cape Fear Community College redacted a name of a student who, a former student, who wrote an email kind of criticizing something that the college did. And I couldn't believe that the name had to be redacted. And Duke Law School, when I asked him, they thought, no, I don't think the name is good enough to just redact. And here is Mark about FERPA, too. FERPA is just about the most abused law in all of officialdom because it is used constantly as a shield against media inquiries that have anything to do with education. And just by having a student's name in something becomes an excuse not to provide the information. And the only way we can get past that is often taking institutions to court and really fighting for our rights. But there aren't a lot of resources for us to do that. It's a, it's much easier to shut the door than it is to kick in the door. And I can give you a counterexample. Right before I left Port City Daily and came here to WHQR, I did, it was a very upsetting story about a young child who had been abused at a school here in New Hanover County. And there were allegations from the parents that it had not been handled well. And the district turned over a large tranche of emails that redacted the student's name, 
which is correct under FERPA, but not the rest of the emails. And it told a fairly clear story of what had happened and allowed us to go to press with that story. And that is a very different animal than we were dealing with than the New Hanover County School Districts of, say, four or five years ago, where they would just say, oh, there are no records because of FERPA. So we've seen districts change over time. There was a time when they would use FERPA to blanketly block any PRR, and they've come around and really taken an approach to it that I think even Mark would probably approve of. Yeah, and I will say a bit about the CFCC incident is that the name, I saw the email and what this person was saying, but a lot of times they do say your email could be disclosed to third parties. And I'm going to continue to look into this and to see who's in the right here. All right, so let's shift a little bit to talk more about, you know, the human side of this. We talked about the law, but it is a very human enterprise. I believe that's the language Mark used when he's talking about this. And one of the things we have to respect is that we live in a culture where people are much more exposed in all different kinds of ways. Their public lives are even more public than ever been before. So here's Mark talking about that. One of the challenges for public officials, I think, is that everything you say can and will be held against you in the court of the internet. Nothing that is said, recorded, is too hard to find anymore. And I think that the persistence of some of that information has made people more nervous than it would in the days when newspapers were recycled and TV and radio broadcasts were on their way to Alpha Centauri and there was no lingering record that was easily found about what was said when. So we do try to understand that our local elected officials and our our local officials who are appointed are human beings and not all of them have media training to go in front of the camera to step in front of a microphone. We, We do get that. But I think the flip side of that that Mark spoke to was that reporters are human too, right? Right. And part of our job is asking questions. We're supposed to ask questions for the public. And I just said, do they not understand sometimes what our role is, that we're supposed to just add a layer, extra layer of accountability and transparency? What's going on here? The shoot the messenger mindset is as old as government, and if not, religion before it. And so it is, that's a real thing. I mean, some of the the push and pull of all of this has always been true. And all these factors we've talked about, digital communication, limitations of staff, the, at the, both at the press side and sometimes the government side, all these things are piled up with a good sprinkling of political polarization on top of it that makes all of this much more complicated and hostile than it used to be. And you can go back and look at old newspapers, even in relatively small communities, and see how much information was gathered up every day or every week in those places and how little of that exists now. You would think that digital stuff would make this easier, but it actually just makes it a lot more complicated. I think another part of this story is that digital media has made it very easy for people to report entirely from their bedroom, we joke sometimes. I've seen entire stories that have just been culled from social media posts and comments where you never actually talked to a person. And a conversation, Rachel, you and I have had about some of our younger interns and conversation Mark definitely has with his students is that, look, this is a real world job. And sometimes that means getting tough. Yeah. And talking to people. And talking to people, which is tough sometimes. Sometimes you wake up and you don't want to. (laughs) Anyway, so here's Mark's thoughts on that. We need to push when we 
need to push and we need to be smooth when we need to be smooth. This is a human enterprise and it's all about, it's as much about relationships and trust as it is about law and policy. And the other thing he weighed in on is, we mentioned this a little bit before, but you got into a little bit more of an in-depth conversation with him about this. And that is, while government agencies, in many cases, at least locally, have been beefing up the communications department, local media has been strapped for resources, fewer reporters trying to cover more and more and more. Reporter to bureaucrat ratio is way off, and the ability for the press to do a decent job trying to cover local news is so challenging right now. And uh, it's a real problem for, for the public, even if the public doesn't totally get it or recognize it. It doesn't help that other than Congress, the news media is one of the least respected institutions in the United States year after year in Gallup polls. And that also makes it more difficult for us in journalism to get what we need because uh, they, the officials that want to hold on to and, and hide certain bits of information, they don't exactly, the, the public doesn't exactly feel all that uh, bad. <laughs> doesn't demand that of them. Yeah, exactly. And with the Gallup polls, I mean, the national media is very low. Local journalism is a little higher, but it is. It is. Local journalism does rate higher than national journalism. But I think when we say journalism to most people in the public, they immediately have some picture of cable news people yelling at each other and or asking rude questions at inopportune moments when uh, People feel sorry for the people they're seeing interviewed on TV or on the radio. And so we haven't done a great job of making a case for ourselves. I can say before I became a journalist, that is kind of what I thought about journalism and the news. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, we've been starting to grapple with this in this year, right, Ben? And that's because of our work with One Small Step. We talk to people on the community and the media does have a lot of work to do. We all do. Yeah, for sure. And so two things I want to unpack from this. One is that, ouch, it stings being compared to Congress with their approval rating hovering around the low 20s. And also is that, yes, we, our ranks have been thinned and it is tough. And I think one thing I have heard at conferences, we did a, a meetup late last year where we just went out and had drinks with a couple with reporters from other outlets, from Star News, Port City Daily, WECT, mm-hmm. sort of shared war stories. The thing that comes up over and over again that Mark talked to you about was collaboration. When we do that, major investigations that come out in local media, those things can hit like a bomb. And when they reveal malfeasance or even positive things like solutions news stories, the stories that have impact will get people's attention. And there becomes a hopefully a healthy rhythm of okay, the more we can do impact journalism, the more the public will see the value in it. And therefore we get more resources to do more of that kind of stories. But I think a lot of news organizations have been stretched thin and they're embracing the thinness instead of concentrating their efforts. Some of that involves collaboration, working in multimedia partnerships on big stories or big themes and sharing data and that happens and when it does it's can have a a real important effect 
Yeah, I think we've been lucky enough to work on projects with uh, The Assembly and WECT and Port City Daily, and we look forward to more of those collaborations in the future. And I think that is one way to make basically the dollar that pays journalists go further instead of just saying, okay, well, we've only got one reporter, so they're just going to aggregate from other outlets or go on social media and try to get the news there. I think there is still some hope there, but I think the overall point that we're these are trying times. I think that still comes through. Okay, well, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back. We're going to be talking to Jennifer Dandrin. She's a former communications person from the city of Wilmington and the Wilmington Police Department who now works in corporate communications, and we'll get her perspective on this. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. And we're talking about public information officers and in general, the way that information gets communicated from government organizations to us, the media, and then to you, the public. Now, this sounds like inside baseball, but it is really the heart and soul of every important story you've probably ever read. And so one of the people we want to talk to is someone who knows this stuff inside out, and that is... Jennifer Dandron, who for a long time was a communications person for the city of Wilmington, and before that, the uh, Wilmington Police Department, and has now moved on to the world of corporate communications. And we sometimes refer to this as going to the dark side when a <laughs> reporter goes to the government. So I wonder what they call it when someone from government goes to the corporate world. But we did ask her, you know, how did you get into being a PIO and... Like many people, she came from a reporting background. So here's what she told us. So because it's not a sustainable lifestyle between the pay, the the hours, and just the general disrespect that reporters deal with, I decided to transition. And public information is a very common path for reporters. So when I became a PIO back in 2017, it's been a, like five or six years, I had a lot to learn. But one thing I knew I wanted was I didn't want to be like the PIO that I had worked with once upon a time, whose name, when she called me, I would start sweating. And I was like, what did I do wrong? I wanted to be the kind of PIO that I wanted to work with when I was a reporter. Um, And so because of that, I took the ideals that made me want to be a reporter, like transparency, holding people accountable. And I think the difference for a lot of people from my experience on both sides is they'll say they believe in transparency and they want to hold people accountable, but it's just a facade. And what they actually want to do is protect themselves and protect their organization and ultimately their job. And if we go back to what we heard from Mark earlier from the Duke Reporters Lab, is that it's about relationships. And so Jen took that experience from when she was a reporter. I want to be a public information officer that people look to for support and context and help. And so she really ran with that. And then we hear that her values stayed the same, even though her job changed. I always tell people it's public information, not public relations. And that is a distinction that I think a lot of people don't realize. Public relations is more of spinning and trying to get stories told through your lens. And when you think about what a PIO does, you think about like you are the voice of the people and you have to work with the reporters who are there to share 
those stories, but you're representing the public. And so why would you try and fight reporters? So I think I can say without getting Jen in too much trouble that there were times when she went to bat for reporters saying they need to talk to someone in the city or they need to talk to the mayor or they need this document. It needs to be this is a, an important and timely story. They need this information quickly. And there were also times where she went to bat for the city where reporters got things wrong. And so I think she did position herself in that place. But one of the things she saw in her time as a PIO was the increasing number of opportunities that local government has been taking to kind of work around the media. One thing that I do want to make clear is that if you are standing up these channels that you own, these direct-to-audience channels, it is not a replacement for the media. It is an add-on. And they think what they want to do is just tell the story their way, not be questioned. And if you listen to our first segment with Mark from Duke University, he's saying we're also seeing the rise of these communication departments who want to go directly to the public and directly to their constituents instead of going to the media or reporters when we can question some of these decisions and get maybe a better picture for the public than just what they want to say to people. Yeah. Uh, Another side of the job of being a PIO is that you work for the government, but the government is usually run by elected officials. And there are varying levels of disconnect between those boards and commissions and the government. Some places, it's really a strong executive director or a manager who's really running the show, and the board's just kind of there to for oversight and to sign off on things. And sometimes the boards are very involved in the granular level, and that always depends. But there's always a situation where a PIO kind of has to get between an elected official or a top executive and the press. And that can be tricky. And we've seen times when either elected officials or uh, a chief of police or a city manager or a county manager has just said, no, I'm not talking to the press about this or not at this time, or I won't talk to that press outlet. So we asked Jen about it, and here's what she had to say. Unless there has been some very egregious issue there is no reason not to talk to the press because it's not about them. It's about the public. And I think sometimes egos get in the way and people will say the story that a reporter wrote was unfair or, again, I didn't like the tone or whatever the reason is. But it's not about them. And we lose sight of that all the time. And you have to remember you are accountable to the taxpayer and they deserve to know the story. And I know a lot of it is personal because when you're in a very high-ranking and powerful position, you have more skin in the game. When there's criticisms, it feels more personal. But it's not about you. It's not about the reporter. It's about the public. And it will always and should always be about the public. So take the ego out of it, answer the reporter's questions, and just let it go. I think in our experience as reporters, you can kind of put your stories into three buckets. One is an emergency situation, and this is when reporters and PIOs work hand in glove during a hurricane. We are just trying to get accurate, important, safety-related information out to Life people. Life-saving. Life-saving information out to people as soon as possible. What, what are the storm conditions? Where are the shelters? What should you be doing? And then there are positive stories or just informational update stories. Hey, you know, this road's going to be closed for construction. Or, hey, we're opening a new park next week. And it's stuff people want to know, and it's relatively uncontroversial. You know, we might fact check it just to make sure the time and date and the money amount, whatever, is right. But in general, this is just, it's a story from the city that they want people to know, and we're helping them tell that. And those first two buckets are less problematic, as you might imagine. And then there's government accountability. Mm -hmm. And this is where something goes wrong at the government. Not only the government's fault, but 
it's going to be a tough story. So here's what Jen had to say about stories like that. Go ahead and accept that your organization isn't perfect. Somebody has probably messed up. It's politics. It's messy. People are unhappy. That is the way of government. So a lot of times you'll have a communications professional who knows the right thing to do. They know. Just give the information no spin. Tell it straightforward. Just answer the questions and be done with it. But then you might have leaders or other influential people who don't understand that. They don't appreciate that and they don't have a background in communications. You'll have people who have risen through the ranks and they are in charge of an organization for a reason but it's not because of their communication skills. And that will often put pressure on a PIO to make sure that you're keeping your boss happy. So you're in between a rock and a hard place, but what makes a PIO good is their willingness to push back. And if you've listened to the newsroom and followed my reporting on Cape Fear Community College, there have been a lot of former employees who have come to me and they tell me their stories. And I'm up to dozens and dozens of on and off the record. So I'm trying to put these concerns to the administration and I constantly get shut down. The board also won't answer these questions or engage with me besides one trustee. So I think this is what she's talking about is that there is this lock and step. We're not engaging. And unfortunately, I think people have risen through the ranks in certain organizations. It's because they have to keep in line with what their boss is telling them. And that's understandable to some degree. Of course. And I think the examples we've given in the past are when governments know there's a problem, they get ahead of it, they're proactive. It usually ends up being a better story for the government and the public learns more because it's not one-sided. And the best example of that was after Hurricane Florence, where New Hanover County brought in any reporter who wanted to sit down, go through their after-action report, which featured some really candid and not always positive feedback from county employees who saw things that didn't go according to plan. And that wasn't a scandalous bombshell story. It was just a story about what the county can do better. Had they buried that report, you can imagine things would have gone a lot differently. Yeah, my reporting last week going to the Cape Fear Community College Board of Trustees, Jim Morton's been told the president of the college to do a third-party survey since January of 2020, and he still has refused, and so has the board. I mean, they've done surveys, but they haven't been third-party. So one of the things we try to understand as reporters is that whether we agree or disagree, PIOs are also human beings, and they are sitting in a real office with real coworkers. And after we drop a story, especially one that's critical, we might say, okay, job well done. We held the government to account. Pop the champagne. Good work, us. But the PIO is sitting down the hall or sometimes in the same office as the people who have been criticized. And that can be tough. And there can be some pressure that comes with that to maybe not do a good job as a PIO. So here's what Jen had to say about that. That's why you end up having bosses calling reporters bosses to complain because there's this fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the jobs reporters do of the jobs PIOs do the pressures are there but you should have a backbone if you don't don't be a PIO and one of the last things that I believe you and Jen talked about was trying to get reporters accurate information because 
we cover so many beats at WHQR and we can't be an expert in everything. So usually when we're trying to call someone within the government, we're really trying to understand how everything works and how this process works. So Jen is talking about she saw that as her role to help the reporters, the media understand how government works. But if you don't understand land development, how are you supposed to accurately translate this very jargon, legalese, heavy government work into something readers can understand if you don't understand it yourself. I was always so happy to sit down and talk with a reporter about here's how the budget process works because you are not an expert in local government, but your readers expect you to be. It's a difficult position to be in, but it does impact the way reporters report, and it's not always great. I will say one thing. I mean, national reporters, they have their beats, and they're in it for 20 years, and yeah, they know it pretty well. But I think people who come are newcomers to the profession and local media, yeah, it's really hard to catch up to speed, and it's really important to have that information. Yeah, and that relationship between the PIO and the reporter is so important there because if when that relationship sours or isn't there or isn't working well, it just means bad stories are going to come out that are inaccurate or misleading, and the PIO will then have to go and try and clean up the mess from their side. The reporter will have to eat crow and issue a retraction or an update or clarification, and really nobody wins. Right. Nobody wins when there's a bad relationship there. And so Jen has moved on to the corporate world. We enjoyed our time working with her, and I appreciate her insight on what it takes to be a good PIO. Okay, well, we've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. And we've been talking about the relationship between reporters and journalists and the communication officers in various government agencies. We heard from Mark Stencil, who teaches future journalists how they will be dealing with this. And we heard from former government PIO, uh, Jen Dandron. We also spoke to Mike McGill, who was the chief communications officer for CFPUA during some of its most tumultuous years, and then moved on to found his own company, Water PIO, that consults uh, wastewater and water utilities on these kinds of crises. But he's been in the business a long time, and so we asked him, where does he think PIOs go wrong? Where I see people go wrong is that they think they can win when it comes with communications over the press. That's not the way this is supposed to work. Because I started in journalism, the way I always learned it is the press is a partner that you need to help do your job. And too much today what we see is people believing that they can, they have to beat the press in order to do their job. And that's the wrong way to go. That's why I saw at CFPUA. I went to every newsroom and said, here I am. Tell me what's wrong. Here's how I'm going to operate. Here's my phone number. You can call me at any time. And that immediately turned the tables because they hadn't done that before. And that's how you, you rebuild. The attitude today is I can bypass the press. I can blame the press. I can make them my enemy and I can kind of get away with just putting it out. And here's the information. If people get it, they get it. If they don't, they don't. And that's not the way to be a successful PIO. And, you know, Mike took the job coming out of journalism. He had been in government communications for a little while, but he walked into CFPUA at a tough time. I had been put together 
from Wilmington and New Hanover County's separate water and wastewater utilities, and which both had their own issues. And right out of the gate, CFPUA had some major billing issues. So like the first bill people got from CFPUA was wrong. And people still remember this. So that was a tough situation, and it was tough to be the face of CFPUA during some of those interviews, I'm sure. And one of the ways that Mike describes how he got some of that trust back was he calls it old school, which was going to the press and making sure he was doing his job as a PAO to get information to the public through the press. And, you know, in his experience, what he's seeing is that that's not always the way PIOs approach things now. I see them being raised on the fact that they can push out the information just the way they want, how they want it, the way they want it, and not include the press and believe that they've been successful. I'm old school guy, I guess. And I talk about this at conferences. Everybody believes social media is the way to go. I, I have someone in my field that speaks out at conferences and says, your next hire should be someone who knows how to use TikTok well, perfectly for a water and sewer utility. So it's ridiculous. My, I get up and I say, no, you want to hire a former journalist. And what we're going to look at here with Mike is when Jen talked about being a PIO, you are in the middle of the government officials and the press. And so here is Mike talking about why it's important for him to be in the know of the situation so that he can give the messages out. My job is for my employer or the client. That's my number one job. How do I successfully do that job? I work with the press to inform the public. That's how it flows. And in too many organizations, the PIO is left out of the conversation. They're not told everything that's going on. And you have to push your way into saying, no, I need to know everything, and then we'll decide what needs to be said. And unfortunately, too many times when you have a younger PIO or people who just know how to use social media and don't work with the press or haven't been journalists, they'll take what's given them from their higher ups and they'll just spit it out and say, yep, I've done my job. The problem with that is you maybe have left yourself wide open for attack by the press because you're not going to stop asking questions. If you don't feel the answers are good enough, you're going to keep asking questions until you get that information. And if I'm viewed in a PI, as a PIO, as a person who you can't get all the information from, you're going to look elsewhere. And that, that's a problem. But unfortunately, a lot of organizations don't realize that. Oh, we're going to withhold information from Mike. He doesn't need to know this. Yeah, I do. And that's where the good PIO has to push and get that information. Now, one of the places this idea gets tricky is when it has to do with PIOs and talking to people in city government or elected officials. Everyone has a slightly different role. Some people like to be in on the email and they'll set you up with a conversation. Some people like to be in the room. Some people like to actually be sort of an, an exchange where like you will send a question to them, they'll send it to the subject matter expert and back and forth. So this works differently in every place. And it's a different experience when you're talking to colleges, too. Yeah. For example, if I want to talk to a researcher at UNCW about climate change, I usually go directly to that researcher and set up a conversation with them. There's more academic freedom there and leeway. And usually the PIOs at the university, I say, hey, heads up, I talked to this professor about climate change. It should be coming out in a couple weeks. And there's not so much as micromanaging. And I think Mike is used to working in crisis management. So that's a little different. It is a little different. And the issue that we were talking about is not so much PIO's style, but when they just try to gatekeep and keep you away from talking to someone who you need to talk to to do your story. So here's Mike's thoughts on that. So if you have a question for a coworker or a board member or whatever, I want you to go through me. 
because I should know what's going on and I can help prepare the worker who doesn't do interviews or the official who thinks they know how to do interviews but they get themselves in the trouble. I want to know that so I can help out and make sure everything works. But if you call me and I push you off to the side or delay and delay and delay and I'm not helpful, then I've opened the door for you to contact that person directly and go around me. And and then the organization complains, oh, she went around me. No, you went around me because I wasn't helping you in my job as a PIO. So I want you to go through me, but you have to trust that if you go through me, you're going to get what you need. Okay, so we couldn't bring Mike McGill into the studio and not talk about the Gen X crisis at CFUA. But we're not talking about the health crisis, the very real health crisis that Gen X and other PFAS pose to the residents in the KFA region. We're talking about the internal political struggle about how to deal with this information. And again, this was a case where the government, at least initially, did not do anything wrong. CFPOA does not make Gen X. It just couldn't filter it out. But it's worth thinking about how the government handled the crisis. This is a long part of the interview, but I think it's worth listening to to get a sense of what went down. The background was CFPOA worked with NC State on a study. They, we helped provide the samples on the study that found Gen X in, in the Cape Fear River. I'll try and condense it down. And when it went around to everybody, including Cape Fear River Watch, everybody saw it as, okay, this is important, but it's one study for six chemicals. We'll send it up the line to DEQ, and we'll see what they have to say about it and if they come down with any standards or thoughts or whatever. So that's where the process was while I was at CFPUA. I leave the place and well, first off, Vaughn the reporter, Vaughn Haggerty reporter, called at CFPUA on May 15th. And immediately I got three different phone calls from three different people within CFPUA. I'd already left to start my firm, saying, What do we do? And I said, You get out front of this. The press has it. We did everything right. The activists who saw the study didn't say it had to be released right away. But now it's coming out. Get out front of it. And everybody behind at lower levels at CFPUA said, yes, we want to get it out. And the decision was made at the top, no, we're not getting it out. Uh, we'll be viewed as a villain like Comores if we go out with it first. So then Vaughn's story comes down. They didn't really cooperate with Vaughn very much. They put out this word bomb of a statement like 36 hours. They didn't tell their board until the last possible minute. And then the story hit. It actually hit on, on the web the day before the big screaming headline. And I remember Woody White gave me a call and said, Mike, what the hell's going on over there? What happened here? And, of course, we know what happened. People lost immediate trust with CFPUA. They have find it. They did the job. But since they failed to communicate about it, they looked like the villain. When I briefly talk about this on the road, I said, Comores did this. But they were 100 miles away behind three levels of barbed wire when the press got the story. CFPUA is two miles down the road, and they can't close their doors. Where do you think the press is going to go? And then there was pushback on that. I ghost wrote their op-ed that appeared in the paper the following Saturday. They called me up and said, hey, can you help us out? That was held up by their legal team. It didn't come out on Friday. It came out on Saturday when no one read it, no one saw it, no one reported on it. I mean, this is the kind of thing behind the scenes that you're just like, come on. And then the investigation held, so they didn't talk for another three weeks. And by the time that all happened, their reputation was, was wrecked. And so you, no one knew exactly who to be mad at. And CFPUA played some role in that by not being as forthcoming as quickly as possible. And 
for a while, it was not clear why that was. And it eventually came out through a reporting that this was a decision made by former executive director Jim Fleckner, who retired in 2021. And still, you have to remember, these are human beings faced with an unprecedented situation, a relatively unknown toxin that everyone is terrified of and you can't filter out of the water and everyone is looking at you. And so I asked Mike, is it possible that this was just a deer in the headlight situation where maybe he didn't respond well, but he wasn't intentionally stalling? He just didn't know what to do. And that's not what Mike thought. When a reporter calls you on May 15th and the story doesn't come out until June 7th, you're making evaluations. It's not like they called on June 6th and said, we have the story and you freeze. Because I do see a lot of utilities with deer in the headlights. This was not that case. And unfortunately, I'll remember this one public session where Deb Butler turned and pointed her finger at the water production staff and said, I don't trust you. And those are pros that did all the right things every step of the way. And they were having their finger wagged in their faces in public. And that was painful. But I will say it. That was a willful decision. He knew what he was doing. So again, Mike there is talking about former CFPUA director Jim Fleckner, who we had reached out to for comment back in 2017 and 2018. Unsuccessfully, he never talked to us about this on the record. But from the reporting we did and the emails we read after we got them through public records requests, and just by virtue of the fact that Fleckner was in charge of the agency, it did seem like he made the decision or played a major role in the decision not to go public earlier and drag their feet. And that ultimately cost, from Mike's point of view, good men and women with the respect of the public. And they didn't deserve that. The anger should have been directed at Chemors, maybe at DEQ and the EPA for not regulating it. But these were just guys trying to keep the water running. And they took a lot of flack. And so the anecdote Mike is sharing there is about State Representative Deb Butler, who, in fairness, I felt like at the time was just sharing the public's confused frustration. So the question we had when you hear something like that is, why is it so hard for people in power to face the truth? Yeah, and that's what I asked. I said, why do people just not want to tell people what the situation is? What is the issue? Because people are worried about their jobs. That's number one in my industry. People are worried about their jobs. You know, I'm working in an industry, water and wastewater, where people have not worked with the press for decades and gotten away with it. All right. The world has changed since social media. The world has changed the way we consume news. Anybody can make a news story. Anybody. The problem that we face in my industry, that's the deer in the headlights piece. I'll say this on the inter- it comes to the interview. You're absolutely right. And I have to be willing to, to sit down for that interview. Then if you have more questions, and let's say you come to something I can't answer, it's okay to say, I don't know. I'll get back to you on that. But that's another answer that a lot of people are scared to give. You can't say, I don't know. If I say I don't know on something, I'll get more information for you, and I get that information for you, then that's usually treated very well. You get more respect out of that. But what I see too many times is I'm scared of sitting down with the press, so I'm not going to do it, which is wrong. And then they're scared. I've got to have every answer nailed down every which way, and you can't do that. And let's face it, when you make a mistake with one of your answers, when you try and be that scripted, you will look 10 times worse. So there's that whole play that goes into it. I do media trainings, but to be honest with you, I just basically say, here's, here are the questions they're going to ask. They're likely to ask, here's what you use. And if you get in a difficult situation, say, you know what, I don't know, and I'll get back to you on that. Journalists understand it. As long as I'm respecting your deadline, you'll give me time to respect your deadline. That's usually the way it works. But people don't understand that. They just think if I sit down on camera, I've got the cameras on, they're going to come at me. They're going to try to embarrass me. 
and we saw with the Gen X mess, once that microphone's on you, you can't walk away from the interview because then that's the worst piece in the world. The board chair of CFPUA at the time was mic'd up for an interview with WECT and said, I only agreed to do this interview on X, Y, and Z, not on this. And he tried to walk off and he didn't even realize he was still hooked up to the mic. So the video was him like tripping over and being yanked by the microphone cord and then taking it off and whipping it off and complaining. Boy, that leads at 5, 6, 11, 5, 6, 11 the next day, maybe even the day after that because it's great video. And that's what people have to understand. You don't want to, to set up that situation. And so Mike is talking there about a, uh, a June 14th, 2017 interview with then CFPUA chairman Mike Brown. We'll have a link to that, including the video on the page, and you can judge for yourself how the interview went. And I wanted to say after Mike finished that thought that in the media, we do have to ask tough questions, especially if it is something that is of the public need. And so we need to be able to ask those questions. We can't do softball questions. We're trying to get the facts so that we can report it accurately out to the public. And we're not supposed to be in the business of name calling or anything like that, but we are trying to get to the bottom of the truth. And that can be somewhat hard with the person in power, but this is the nature of our work. Yep. And all I'll add to that is that a good PIO means quality, reliable information gets to the public. A bad PIO means the opposite. And either way, you pay for them. These are public employees. They are taxpayer funded positions, sometimes entire taxpayer funded departments. And so that's the additional reason that we pay attention to it, because that's your government doing the job for you to help us do our job. That's right. So it seems like a good place to leave it. Rachel Keith, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guests this week, Mike McGill, Jen Dandron, and Mark Stencil, and of course, my colleague, Rachel Keith. Thanks also to our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Fernell, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's show or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.